There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Nighthawk. Guys, History Hack has made it to Friday. Alina and I are basically wrecks. Alina, are you still, are you still awake? Yeah, I think so. My voice is going though, so please bear with me, everyone. We're just we're completely overwhelmed because we're just about to take this uh, session with our guest, and we've just had the most adorable uh, logo pop through um, that someone's designed. It's like a cartoon of us. We will post it. Um, you will have seen it by the time this podcast goes out. But Steve Smith, thank you so much. What a lovely thought, and we both love it. Thank you. I, I'm I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know exactly what to say. So thank you so much. You're such a sweetheart. We will buy you a drink at some point when we're allowed out of our houses again. Um, yeah, as I said, we are we are a bit wrecked. We've got to the end of the first week. Uh, we're completely overwhelmed still by the response to this podcast um, and the stats. Uh, we just neither of us can believe how many of you are tuning in and downloading it. Um, if anyone wants to give us a hand putting this thing on on uh, iTunes or YouTube or anything, we basically have no more to give. We have a YouTube channel. I have not the time or the inclination or patience to try and figure out how it works. If anyone wants to get involved, do let us know. And thank you too to Paul Carter, who looked into the whole Spotify thing for us and basically set me straight on how that's going to work. Um, but anyway, let me introduce our guest today because he's sitting here chomping at the bit. Um, it is the absolutely fabulous, I love him to pieces, it is Joshua Levine. Um, I'm just going to, before I tell you who he is, I just want you all to laugh at the fact that he spent about five minutes combing his hair for this and getting ready before he realised it's an audio podcast. Josh, I'm so sorry. That, no, no, it's not, it's not your fault. It's because I don't understand uh, technology. I'm basically an OAP, uh, but I look good. You, you should know that. You do look good. You, you always look good, Josh. But uh, for anyone who lives under a rock and doesn't know who Josh is, Josh is a, a fantastic historian. You would have seen him on your television. If you've seen anything with me in it, um, you'll have seen him as well because we're in a lot of stuff together. <laughs> to the point that my nickname for you is Whippersnapper because someone once criticised us both on an air documentary and said, we don't need these young young whippersnappers um telling yeah. us about history and you were thrilled because you were like i'm 42 and i'm a whippersnapper i was over 50 at the time i was thinking <laughs> my god how old is the person saying but uh, anyway not only does josh do television josh has written some fantastic books he also uh, so he's written books on world war one uh numerous books on world war two uh you if you've read any of those forgotten voices books back in the day he worked on some of those before he got massively famous uh he was also the historical advisor on christopher nolan's dunkirk as well so if you have not seen josh's face and his awesome hair that he spent five minutes doing then you have seen his work um josh how is 
coronavirus for you. You're locked down, aren't you? You're in self-isolation. We're locked down. We're locked down. My wife and I are locked down with our two-year-old. Uh, and so it's kind of a, a joyless, open-ended Christmas here. Um, we're, we're watching uh, a lot of sooty. Uh, well, I, I'm personally watching a lot of 1970s and 80s uh, football on, on YouTube and DVD. To, with my daughter, I'm watching a lot of sooty, my, my old sooty DVDs, which um, she seems to love. Uh, and finding out that sooty, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's got racist uh, moments or moments in it that perhaps wouldn't be so acceptable today. Like, when Have you not decided um, that Sweep's family is racist and that woke culture now would not be able this? to handle it? Have you seen it? this as well? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sweep's family. So Sweep's family come on. I mean, it's just a brilliant comic scene. I mean, Sweep's family all come into the house and there's about 30 of them who are all Sweep and all make the Sweep noise. So it's chaos. But they're all dressed in... So one's dressed in a Chinese hat. So one's a little Chinese... Uh, sweep and another I mean I'm not even gonna go where some of them seem to be two of them his parents seem to be uh, Hasidic Jews they, they you know like my grandfather when he came over to this country it's all very very weird but but brilliant um, and I'm I you know so I'm having a just a surreal I say joyless I mean you know we're, we're watching the other day we we made muffins and, and watched Dumbo oh you only do this kind of thing at Christmas and so I was sort of reaching up to feel the paper hat on my head it wasn't there we're all in for coronavirus but anyway <laughs> weird I mean what can I say weird I think I'm a little bit too young for this because I I used to watch Rosie and Jim but I bet I bet Josh you're dancing to Rosie and Jim right I I, I would be if you played it I've never heard of Rosie and Jim but if you played that I would be up like a like a rocket he'd pretty much do anything that? for money won't you Josh well let's not push that um, <laughs> there are one or two things I probably wouldn't but but um uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. You see, I have no idea what Rosie and Jim is, and you—I mean, you must know what what um, Sooty is, Belina, don't you? Uh, I think I'm a bit too young, like slightly I'm, a bit. It's too a young, psychopath so, um... with his hand up a bear's backside who thinks the bear is talking to him, um, and then yeah, that's one way of so he's a little yellow bear, and then Sweep is a little grey dog. Um, and then he has a girlfriend, Sue, who was a panda, who I always found quite snooty. I don't know about you, Josh. <laughs> oh, incredibly snooty. I mean, she, she's appalling. She's absolutely awful. I, um, I frankly and, don't know. know. Looking at it now, I don't know how City puts up with her. I, I mean, uh, you know, and he's, he's put up with her for over 70 years. That's the amazing thing. Um, and, you know, in all that time, he's been five. There's so much about it that's... It sort of fits in with coronavirus. It's so weird. Oh, I just uh, my corona experience uh, of the last twenty-four hours has been insane. So we're we're going to talk to you about Blitz Spirit. That's what you're here for. But I have to say that I thought that I was fully entertaining the Blitz Spirit. I had it down. I have shopped for old people. I have locked myself in. I am rationing my gin and tonic. I have fully embraced this this apparent Blitz Spirit. But um, when I found out that McDonald's was closing, I completely lost my my shit um, I went and joined a massive queue to go through the dry feud yeah, it was so bad in the end that the police had to come and shut the A217 in Sutton because there was so there was a half mile then a mile queue waiting to get into the McDonald's <laughs> drive-thru but I luckily I got in quite early um, and I, I went and bought one of those ridiculous boxes of 20 chicken nuggets and just came home and put it in my freezer because uh, of all the things that coronavirus has done to me the thought that I cannot drive uh, 300 yards to McDonald's to satisfy my need for chicken nuggets 24 hours a day that's what made me 
finally that's lose it. Brilliant. So that's your, you, everyone finds their breaking point. Yours is McDonald's. <laughs> and not only that, you were hoarding. You were hoarding. I hoarded. They're okay. first world problems, guys. First world problems. Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't claim anything else. Let's, let's leave Corona. Well, we are actually a lot of what we are talking about today has to do with coronavirus because of the subject matter. But, but no, let's yeah. leave our own first world problems behind and leave Sooty behind because, frankly, he's quite disturbing uh, in retrospect. Yeah. And get onto the history with you, Josh. So, Blitz Spirit. Yeah. Now, you did this fantastic book. The secret history of the Blitz, um, and what you did was examine uh, all the dark side of the Blitz, if you like. You looked into people's behaviour, and and so now this book is so relevant because you don't think that this Blitz spirit that we're hearing about uh, now in the UK that people want you to embrace, you don't think it necessarily exists in kind of the halcyon way that the press are touting it as as an example for us to live up to here in Britain. No, and I think I, I think that's it's not surprising. The press wants to turn everything you know black or white. And they, they want to make everything very, very simplistic. Of course they do. You know, that's, that's their job. Um, and of course, it wasn't, it wasn't at all like that. You know, there was, there was, uh, there was a lot of very, very good behaviour. Um, and there was a lot of very, very bad behaviour. And some of that good behaviour, bad behaviour came from exactly the same people and sometimes on the same day. Because the point was, the essential point, I think, uh, about the Blitz was this was a time of incredible intensity, incredible stress, where the temperature of the country was really turned up. And so people went off in directions they never had before. They found things in common with each other, the most obvious being they were under bombs uh, and they suddenly were, were, were at risk. They shared risks they never had before, but they shared all sorts of other things as well. They shared the food they were eating, they shared the clothes they were wearing, they were sometimes sheltering together, fire watching together. Um, you know, you had evacuation, different classes brought together, all these things. So people suddenly shared things in common they never had before. So clearly they were in some ways brought together. But at the same time, the intensity, the danger, the, the, the sheer temperature also meant people did things, took risks that they'd never done before, taken before. And these could be um, all kinds of things, tiny little things. Uh, they could be sexual. They could be in terms of crime. Uh, and they could just be in terms of suddenly, you know, you go about your daily routine and you're shifted onto another axis. So you'll suddenly do something you would never have dreamed of doing before. And that becomes the new normal. So absolutely, it's, it's much more complicated, interesting and nuanced than perhaps people sometimes give it credit for. Well, at the moment, we're getting a lot of incredibly ridiculous information because back then there wasn't any social media or 24 hour news. So was it even worse? Um, everything must have been completely done by word of mouth. Well, yeah, I mean, you, so, so yeah, I mean, the newspapers existed. So people were, were, were reading um, stuff in, in either the broadsheets or the, or, or the tabloids. There were, there, were, there were magazines. But I think a lot of what was coming, the, the equivalent of the internet, was absolutely word of mouth. And, you know, rumours. I mean, my God, the rumour mills that were, that, that, that were going round and, and um, uh, that, that, that um, you know, people were making their decisions on the basis of what, you know, uh, what a neighbour told them. So, um, yeah, there wasn't a... But, I mean, isn't that the same today? Isn't, isn't the internet just a sort of huge rumour mill? But I think there was a problem with, you know, with information um, during the bits. I mean, I think, I think people weren't necessarily getting um, the advice, the information... 
uh, that, that, that they wanted officially from, from the government a lot of the time. And of course, that's pretty much like today. You hear, you know, lots of people complaining that, you know, the, the, in the last few days, uh, you know, I'm, uh, where I'm talking now, the last few days, the government has come out with a lot of information, but then you know, we want to hear clarification. And, you know, if I'm self-employed, what's the situation? Or if I'm a builder, what's the situation? It's, it's kind of the same thing. You know, information, when, when the government is making it up, as it was during the Blitz, and it's, it kind of is now, um, that information comes through, uh, you know, in dribs and drabs. Um, let's talk about the fact that one thing the government in Britain have done is flung themselves into action uh, to make this as economically undamaging as possible. And there's all these unprecedented measures like paying people 80% of their wages and so on. And I highly suspect that this did not happen during the blitz. And um, so did it happen? I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to say no. Um, well, actually it, it sort of kind of did. I mean, the, you know, the authorities, you know, did sort of, go to some ex great lengths eventually to treat the people well. I mean, it, I think the, the government was quite taken by surprise during the Blitz by the amount of homelessness. So, so they were expecting, you know, the, the, before the war, there was this idea, you know, that the, the bomber will always get through. There's going to be, you know, mass cataclysmic event where, you know, when, when the bombing starts, society basically will, 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 will finish because nothing can stop the bombers getting through. That was a pre-war idea and that bled over into the beginning of the war. So what the authorities were waiting for really was a, a hell of a lot of, of death um, but what they weren't prepared for was the amount of homelessness that in London they were left with at the beginning of the blitz, the amount, number of damaged houses and people who were left basically with um, nowhere to go. Um, they were left with no money, only the clothes they were wearing, uh, and you know their homes were open, um, their, their belongings were out in the street, and you know what could they do? They could go to rest centres, but rest centres you were only meant to stay one night in a rest centre before moving on. So you had this large mass of refugees who had nowhere to go. The government had to make it up on the spot, and you know they basically did a did a fabulous job very very quickly. So in London, for example, it was talked about as the crisis in London, and they appointed this man called Henry Willink, who was an MP later became health minister, and he was a conservative, um, which shows how you know, pragmatic the whole time was. It was not, there was no party politics. It was all a matter of, you know, getting things sorted, getting things done. And he brought in new housing. He swept away the, the poor laws. He uh, brought in instant repairs, all kinds of welfare initiatives. A lot of this stuff, you know, actually, this stuff that happened during the Blitz paved the way um, for the welfare state, for um, uh, certainly for the beverage report and for what happened afterwards, but not in a political party political way, in an absolutely sort of pragmatic way, what was needed at the time. So when I look back at this period, I'm, I'm you know, I I'm really impressed. Um, it's only my view, but I'm really impressed by the fact that the government, which wasn't prepared, and fair enough it wasn't prepared. I mean, who, you know, nobody really knew what was coming, um, really, you know, pulled itself together very, very quickly and sorted out what was a massive problem. And of course you can see parallels today. The government again is having to think on its feet. Um, you know, I'm certainly, I have no idea how well it's doing, how, you know, 10 years from now when everything is looked at as, 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 as pre-corona, post-corona, then we'll have, you know, all sorts of people able to tell us how well the government did. But it's certainly having to think on its feet now 
in a very similar way to the way the government did uh, in 1940-41. Talk to me, uh, I, or tell, tell our listeners, because I already know the answer, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm feeding you this. Um, I really want you to give everybody the example, because one of the big iconic things of the Blitz is the pictures of everybody sheltering yeah. in the underground. But that is a brilliant example of something that evolved and actually evolved without the government, but it, of people feeling yeah. their way along and finding solutions. And, and you would assume that the government let the people down there, but that's not the case, is it? Well, that, you see, this is, and this is a good example. This actually undercuts what I've just said because, well, the, so basically the government, um, before uh, the bombing started and before the war, wanted people to um, uh, shelter in what was known as dispersal. In other words, they didn't want everyone together. The idea was that if people sheltered um, in, you know, large, huge uh, underground shelters, there were a couple of things they were worried about. First of all, they were genuinely worried that one bomb you know, which, which entered a, a large shelter would, would kill hundreds, thousands of people in one go. They're also worried about the amount of money, frankly, it would cost to build these huge shelters and the time it would take. But another thing they were worried about, which is a bit more sinister, they were worried that um, if, if lots and lots of people went underground uh, and started to shelter underground, they basically wouldn't want to come up again. They, they basically become sort of counterculture, antisocial, troglodytes, you know, sort of um, moles, their eyes would heal up and, uh, and, and, and they'd never become productive members of society again. You get a sort of anti-counterculture living underground. That's genuinely what they thought. And to be, you know, it's interesting also, you know, Henry Moore, the sculptor, I mean, he, he went down into the underground uh, and, and started to, to take sketches of people down there because he found, you know, he was looking for something really basic, people in, in really sort of basic primordial um, situation. And that's what he found down there. So, you know, he, he found a, a, a kind of strange troglodyte counterculture down there once the sheltering did begin in the underground. But anyway, the people, they uh, basically brought about tube sheltering themselves. The tubes had been used in the First World War, but the authorities decided no. We're not going to have sheltering in the tubes. We want the tubes to stay running all the time. We want the tubes to be, to be available for, for taking important people, important documents around the city. So no, we don't want people sheltering down there. Well, the people took it into their own hands. Uh, you, you had, um, uh, for example, uh, uh, shelters from Stepney, led by Phil Paratin, who's a communist MP, leading a bunch of people into the Savoy shelter and ordering cups of tea, being very ordered, it was really a, a public relations exercise, um, but saying, you know, why shouldn't ordinary people get good shelters? And then in the tubes, you had people forcing their way down. Um, you had this happening, I think, at Liverpool Street and at Hoban. And if you look at the, the government records, you can see that the, the, the head of the Metropolitan Police, um, Games, he's, he's actually asked, he said, what do you want me to do about this? Do you want us to shoot? You want to get the army in and, 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 and shooting at, at our own people? Obviously, the answer to that was, was no. Um, so it became a kind of fait accompli. The people insisted on sheltering down there, and the government were not about to stand in their way. So I suppose I'd, I'd, I'd temper what I said before. Yes, the government generally did the right thing, um, and sometimes their hand was forced by the people. Another example is trekking. A lot of people in provincial towns... 
um, once the Blitz had widened um, after November 1940 to places outside of London, so places like Coventry, Southampton, Liverpool, you know, wherever, all, all over the country, um, what a lot of people started doing was instead of staying at home because there wasn't any deep sheltering, um, they would basically move outside of the city and they'd sleep in the countryside and they'd sleep under hedges and but then come back in to the city next day and and work in the factories or do whatever they were doing so it was kind of a um, um, i don't know what you would call it, it was like a sort of extreme commuting it's uh, people astonishing were, <laughs> don't you because this is did not people do this last weekend they got in camper vans didn't they and went to the highlands to spend the weekend out there for safety and what you're and exactly. what you're saying as well about the government um, essentially doing the right thing, but in some ways having their hands forced by the people is exactly what we've seen with the lockdown. It, in my interpretation is our government gave us the opportunity to be sensible and do as we were told and people didn't do it. So now we're under lockdown and what you're like, you're saying nothing new, but um, this no. iconic blitz spirit, one thing that people here in the UK clearly seem to think was better and that we should be living up to is, is general behavior. Do you see any parallels with people's behaviour in terms of refusing to do as they, uh, the government says? Oh, and many, 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 many. I mean, you know, again, people are people. In, in, in the beginning of the war, so, so um, uh, if you, the war began and people started hoarding food. I mean, it, it, it just quite simply did. Rationing didn't come in immediately, didn't come in, I mean, early, but only at the beginning of 1940, and people were hoarding. If you look at behavior in the shelters um, early on, you know, in September, October 1940, in, in, in the tubes, behavior was pretty bad. I mean, the mass observation, which organization sent observers to, to watch what was going on and report on it. If you look at their um, report for October 1940, they, they're down, they, they have somebody, an observer down in the tube who sees people fighting to get in, there's jostling, there's arguing once they're down there, there's a, a, a small boy being thrown out who's, who's trying to uh, reserve seats for his parents. You know, it's, and then they watch as the war goes on and they notice that the behavior gets better. So people find their routine. I mean, one thing that you notice happening in shelters, you, you, you've got the behavior getting better. But one reason for this is that quite organically, the more dominant personalities start taking over and start telling people what to do. The majority of people are happy to be told what to do. And once that happens and each particular shelter gets its sort of natural leader, then the order just starts to sort itself out. And that happened, you know, relatively quickly. But there were other bad behaviors in shelters. I mean, one thing, I don't know if you're aware of this, this was a, a, a thing called droppers. So basically gangs, criminal gangs, would um, put members into the queues for shelters. Uh, you know, early on in the day, they'd get down there, they'd take the best place, and other people, people who actually wanted to use the shelter, would come down, and the dropper would then basically sell that place. Uh, to, to, to genuine shelterers. And, you know, they would, they would charge more. It's like ticket touts, really. I mean, they would, they would charge more for, for places in the deeper, safer shelters, less for, for a less safe shelter. Um, and, and another thing you find, uh, if, you, if you start reading around the Blitz, lots of showing off, kind of showing off, people ignoring the sirens. 
people wanting to show that they're not afraid, people wanting to show, I mean, I think the basis of this really is fear. People wanting to demonstrate, people who are afraid, wanting to demonstrate they're not at all afraid by, you know, the, the siren goes off and people very, very blasé. Oh, is that the siren? I barely recognize it. And, 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 um, and so you have that kind of sort of deliberate ignoring, flouting of that kind of, of rule. And, and one thing that I find fascinating about the shelters, I have to say, is this um, story, Guy Gibson, who's a leader of the, later the leader of the, the, the dams raid, Operation Chastise. But at this point, during the Blitz, he was a night fighter. He was with 29 Squadron. And in November 1940, Guy Gibson, uh, who basically spends most of his nights up in the air, fruitlessly trying to, to shoot down German bombers, um, pretty difficult and dangerous job. He goes, he's, he's, he's in London one night and he goes down into a shelter, bear in mind November 40, and he's down there. And because he's wearing his RAF uniform, people start looking at him and then a kind of mob develops and they start shouting at him. And they start saying to him, why aren't you up there? Why aren't you, why aren't you attacking the bastards? Why are you? And he said he got so nervous, the leader of the dams raid, got so nervous that he left the shelter and, and went back, he said, I'd rather take my chances up there with the bombs. So two things here. First of all, you know, he, you know, he, he's actually risking his life on a nightly basis and, he's, you know, fighting those bastards. As, but secondly, we're talking November, we're talking weeks after the end of the Battle of Britain when the RAF were, were total heroes. So, you know, there's so many, this is how the mood changes during wartime. But also this is, this is the sort of variable behavior that isn't necessarily part of the, the consensus, you know, our idea of the Blitz. It's more interesting, it's more nuanced, um, and it's why it's worth looking closely at. Josh, just quickly, yeah. restore my faith in humanity. Yes. Give me one beautiful example of something that represents this Blitz spirit folklore. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, I, I can give you... I can give you what I think is a sort of defining, because I think Blitz Spirit was real, by the way, having said all of what I've just said. <laughs> it, 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 it coexists alongside um, the bad behavior. And, you know, I think it's sometimes very, very easy to just dismiss it. Even the book, you know, the fantastic book by, by Calder, The Myth of the Blitz, he's not claiming that, that Blitz Spirit didn't exist. He's just saying it's more complicated, more nuanced. And so my defining story, and this was told to me, by a fantastic woman called Joan Varley. She was well into her 90s when she told me this. She was, she was a young girl and she was on a bus uh, traveling in London, traveling through Westminster. She was smoking on the top at the back. You could do that in those days. And it was just her at the back and then there was just one other man right at the front. Uh, and as they were driving along, um, they heard a bomb coming down and the driver heard it as well. So he veered off the route. And then when, it exploded elsewhere, he got back onto the route. But while the bomb was coming down, the man at the front got up and he just walked slowly down to the back and he sat next to Joan and he held her hand, total stranger. And then when the bus was back on its route, he didn't look at her, he just <laughs> dropped her hand, got up and walked back to the front and never turned back. That's instinctive blitz spirit. That is the idea of people coming together in danger. So this, to say that it didn't exist is just too simplistic. Of course it existed. That's your essence. And then multiply it in different ways. And, and that's what Blitz Spirit was. 
it's a difference isn't it that we can't re reach out to each other now i mean you'd if he tried right. to hold her hand now you'd be like get away from me you're contaminated if you, um if you try to hold her hand now i guess 30 pounds fine the, 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 I mean, that, that, that is the difference. That's absolutely, you know, there are some, there are some similarities. Absolutely, plenty of similarities actually between now and then. Plenty of things we can draw out. But of course, the big difference is, is that you know the kind of danger, the, the, you know, the bombs were coming from from the sky, causing instant death, terrible wounds, homelessness, and you know the danger now is a virus spread by contact. So yeah, I mean, couldn't be more different. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's just talk about another similarity. Um, they called yeah. for 250,000 NHS volunteers. I, I signed up last night. Uh, you can be driving yeah. medication around people around if they have hospital appointments. You can be delivering shopping. It's even uh, checking in on lonely people as well and, and making sure they're not completely alone and lonely um, and becoming depressed. They got 170,000 straight off. And I just read just before we started taping and you did too, they've now hit 400,000 people willing to go and do this, which is just exceptional. But I mean, I, I know you're going to say yes, this spirit of volunteerism must have been alive and well during the Blitz. Absolutely, it was. And they even called it volunteerism. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely heartwarming when you look at the way people did rally. So you've got the ARP, uh, Air Raid Precautions, and you know, in some of these, you know, people think always think of the wardens, um, but all sorts of people were ARP, stretcher parties, mortuary vans, all sorts of different roles, you know, difficult, difficult roles, fire watchers. And then you had other voluntary services, you had the YMCA, Citizens Advice Bureau. The one that I always like is the WVS, the Women's Voluntary Service, because my God, the different things that they did, the, the staffing the rest centres, caring for the homeless, the mobile canteens they were running those they were driving ambulances they were what was the one thing they they were collecting rose hips um from the countryside because they contained a lot of vitamin c i mean you whatever it was they these these women were doing it oh well um, queen mary was driving around badminton wasn't she after she got like against her will sent out there for her own safety was driving around like a lunatic rallying everybody i, I can't remember i think it's glass or recyclable metal or something so I mean, everybody was at it well railings i mean you know the, another big thing that the wvs were, were very keen on that you know they were removing railings and 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 so, you know, there was so much volunteerism that a lot of people were just being turned down. They couldn't even get accepted to do it. Um, and, you know, I'm always fascinated by the psychology behind these things. You know, why, why so many people are keen to do it? And, you know, there are some, you know, 
there's certainly peer pressure and there's people feeling guilty that their own situation is safe. Um, but then there's just a lot of good feeling. I mean, you, you, can, you can absolutely see it. And, you know, enormous numbers of people volunteering then. And as you say, we, we seem to have close on half a million people willing to volunteer now in 2020, um, which is just wonderful. Tell me a story, Josh, about the crime and the blitz and the people taking advantage. I think we should do looting. Let's do the looting. There was a, a load of looting. Of course, there was lots of looting. Um, you know, the, 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 the opportunity was there. Houses were opened up uh, and, you know, it took a hell of a lot of self-control to, to walk past a house where there was nobody around and not maybe to take something you know, that you could use. And in fact, you know, people were being told to, to, to make do with what they have and to recycle. So, you know, who's to say that, you know, taking something that from a house where people uh, had been killed wasn't just recycling. And I, you know, just I, I read this terrible story of a, the head of a heavy rescue squad who took half a bottle of gin that was on this site uh, from the house and just handed it round to his men who were having a terrible time and was actually convicted uh, of theft for doing that so you know it, it was a gray area looting but it was also in some cases very extreme and certainly one extreme example that i can think of is is an, a nightclub in london called the cafe de paris and this was a this was a very very famous well-frequented nightclub uh which was considered completely safe because it was underground um and uh, completely underground and uh anyway a bomb managed to basically get through um, uh, an underground, exploded on the dance floor uh, in the Café de Paris in 1941. And the you know, scene was absolute carnage. Um, although a lot of people, interestingly or weirdly, um, weren't, you could, you know, were absolutely un, looked unharmed, but were killed by the blast. And these were the people who were particularly preyed on because even before any of the emergency services had been on the scene, the looters had been down there. I mean, some people talked about the looters as being a kind of extra emergency service because they were so quick on the, the, the scene of a disaster. So they got down, and when the police got down, one of the first policemen down there was a man called Ballard Barclay, who he was a special constable. Um, but you'll probably have seen him on television because he played the major in Forty Towers. On oh, no um, way. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, I love him in Forty Towers. It, it paints him in a different light when you think of him as one of the first down here in the... Café de Paris, and he said he was shocked because, you know, looking round, he could see that the looters had been down and they cut the fingers off of people, off of, of, of women to get to their rings um, and then basically taken the fingers off. And, he, you know, he, he was utterly shocked by to, to, to see this kind of thing. And it is utterly shocking to hear it even, even now. You just um, don't associate so, that kind of behaviour with the Blitz, do you? Because of this, this kind of folklore that we have about how... You don't. You don't. Um, but people are people. There are people who would do that now. There were people who would do that then. And there were people who would do that, you know, 50, 100, 1,000 years ago. There are yeah. people who, who behave that way. And, um, and, and, and it's as simple as that. So, no, we don't associate it with the Blitz, but there it is. It was there. What's I remember vaguely there there was a story about uh, people looting or people trying to steal during the Blitz, but it ended up with an amazingly happy ending that they couldn't take any credit for, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's one story that I found which I think absolutely 
gives you a sense of how good bad behavior coexisted, how the, the, the temperature of the time um, really got people behaving in extreme ways. So basically, there was this criminal gang, um, and uh, what they did was to, to um, go out and steal safes during bomb, bombing raids. Because they, you know, they were working on the basis that not many people would be around during the bombing raids. If they actually wore ARP uniforms, so much the better, people wouldn't question them. So what they would do, they would steal uh, a van, uh, they would take that van to the site of somewhere they knew there was a safe. They would take the safe into the van, take it away, and then in their own time, open up that safe. So this is what they did. They went along on this one particular night to um, uh, London Bridge. They parked up. They went into this warehouse. And inside the warehouse, they started to manhandle this safe out. <clears throat> well, they got into the, into the doorway. A bomb exploded nearby, threw them all up into the air. There were four of them. Threw the safe up into the air. They decided tonight night let's just get away we're safe but let's go so out they go one of them who goes by the name of spider which i suspect is not his real name <laughs> um looked up and saw in a, a a third floor window a little girl and she was in a building and the building was on fire now spider was a cat burglar so if there's anything spider can do it's shimmy up drain pipes um and that's what he started to do went up and he got the girl in his arms and he was wondering how to bring her down because that was going to be more difficult when at that point along came uh, a fire engine and there was a policeman there as well the fire engine basically got spider and the girl down to the ground and the policeman was so impressed by what he'd done that he wanted to get his name and address wanted to recommend it for some kind of reward the, the safe was still sitting over there in the in the background nobody had spotted it the others had all scarpered Spider just wanted to, the last thing he wanted to do was leave his, his details for the police. So he just said, no, they're great, great, and off he went. But what that story does, I think, is to show that temperature of the period, that intensity, the fact that in kind of the, the, the flash of a bomb, you could go from stealing a safe to saving a life. Uh, and that's what this period was all about. It's the intensity that drove people to extremes. That's, that, in a way, is a sort of defining story of the period. It's just mad. If you were going to loot, you two, where would you loot? I reckon I'd make a killing. I'd empty Pandora completely because it's loads of little stuff and I could get it all in one bag and then I'd run off and I'd bank it and then I'd sell it after this is all over when people have got money again. What would you do? How long, how long have we got? <laughs> not that long just pick one i have four so i'll rattle off really 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 quick so motorbike shops chocolate shops michael kors clothing i'm gonna stop there michael See, kors I, can oh yeah. they stole my money i don't want anything from them i just set fire to michael kors go on josh but michael kors that's just not even that good stuff is it it's sort of you know it's, it's got a name to it but it's not even that nice is it or maybe exactly like, well, josh because i got bought what? a 350 pound smartwatch from them that never ever worked that they kept for nine months to repair promised they'd refund so actually, the money didn't refund the money and then just sent the watch back, which I no longer want because in the meantime, Christmas happened and I asked for a Fitbit. So I, do you know what? I would loot them. I'd loot £350 worth of Michael Gore's merchandise and Alina, <laughs> you can have it. Yes! <laughs> I don't know what I would, what I'd really, you know, I, I go through phases of things. See, at the moment, I'm really into, into the garden. So, 
But what's the point of lo- looting a garden centre? I mean, it's just oh, that makes you sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. Do, I can you not, even if you're having a midlife crisis, instead of a garden centre, can you not like an Aston Martin showroom or something? Yeah, yeah, that's the Martin show. No, actually, I'm sticking with the garden centre. I'm going to go around at my leisure, during the day, <laughs> helping, helping myself to hostas and 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 uh, passion flower. Passion. Yes, yes, absolutely, passion. I need a passion flower creeper at the moment, so that's what I'm going for. Uh, I'm leaving this me. behind because, frankly, Josh, I'm disappointed in you. So I'm going to put you back on the street. <laughs> I know and, it's because it's in my mind at the time, and this is this is this is what I'm like. Anyway, but yes. Anyway, sorry. right. Okay. I I want to know: Did people? Because yeah. a lot of people are behaving, I think, during this Corona crap in a way that they don't normally yeah. behave. Did people become criminals overnight during the Blitz? And and did people try oh. and exploit it? Like I'm wondering, uh, people saying like now, will they try and say they work more hours than they did? To get money out of the government on the wages oh, thing is that possible did this happen did it ever happen this absolutely i mean this in a way this is this, when you talk about people talk about crime in the blitz and they think about the big you know set piece crimes and actually you know this this is this is where most of the, first of all a lot of people just inadvertently became criminals overnight because of all the wartime regulations that were coming in and people had absolutely no idea what these were and um, they were strict liability. So whatever they did, they became uh, a, a, a criminal. So, and you think of, you know, turning on lights and, you know, turn that light out and all that kind of thing and food. And, but there were, you know, so, so there's one example I found of a, a, a vicar um, who um, rang his church bells and, and, and ringing church bells had been banned because they were meant to be uh, a, an indicator of, of, of uh, the, the coming of the invasion or, or parachute troops. Um, and he rang his church bells and he ended up being sent to prison for 12 days. Which, <laughs> you know, and he said, I didn't know anything about this, um, whether he did or not, never mind, strict liability, prison for 12 days. There was another crime that I, I found, which was making a statement likely to cause alarm or despondency which basically means bringing down... You know, the same, whole same of Twitter would be banged up, wouldn't it? Well, do you remember the, 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 a few years ago, there was a, the Twitter joke trial, the guy who made that joke about, um, about um, bombing Nottingham Airport. And he ended up, it's very similar to that. He ended up in court. I can't remember what happened with him, but he ended up in court for making a joke on Twitter about bombing an airport. Well, right now we've got Prince Philip. How, if I hear, every day I hear from someone new that there's a new rumour that Prince Philip has died. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, absolutely. I mean, my God, the rumour, and we see people trending on Twitter. I mean, that's your immediate thought is, is, is they're, they're dead. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, it actually says they're dead and they're not dead. This guy, a guy called Cecil Hughes, who I find is living in Oxford, and he basically made, he went, he went to fix somebody's electricity meter, you know, and while he was there, he, he basically made some bad jokes, um, which, let's face it, we've all done. Uh, and, and uh, you know, very often. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> and, um, and he made some bad jokes and in sort of a bad, slightly bad taste, not really, but, you know, about what would, if the Germans came, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make Ribbentrop king. I, I rubbish like that. Um, and the, the woman whose meter he was doing basically complained that this was, this was uh, you know, not the sort of thing a, a, a loyal subject should be saying. And 
he was found guilty and he was fined for causing alarm or despondency. Uh, so that was very... Then there were, there were people who actually did, you know, take the system and try and sort of twist it to their advantage. So um, there was a government compensation scheme uh, for if you had a bombed out house, um, you were entitled to, I think it was 500 pounds, I forget exactly how much. So this one man, Walter Handy, um, applied, uh, put in 19 separate applications uh, and uh, for his pain was um, sent to prison um, for, I forget how long. So, so there, were, there were people who absolutely, some of them, who just inadvertently, I mean, you know, Noel Coward um, got in trouble for, for, for financial reasons. Ivan Novello, who's like the big songwriter, the big musical hero, um, had been for, for years at this point. He was sent to prison for, for, um, for petrol offences uh, during the war. And, and so, you know, there, was a, there were a lot of people who either fell foul of the rules without realising they'd done anything, it became illegal. Really weird things. My grandfather went to jail. It broke him. Because so my great aunt, who has since uh, sadly passed away, her first husband was an absolute ratbag, a uh, wife beater, just scum, absolute scum. Um, he had kicked her down the stairs, and she had lost her. Eight, she was eight months pregnant, and their baby girl died. I mean, he was an absolute monster. And uh, I think what whatever happened as a result of all this, the reaction that my my great grandfather had to him, um, he he planted a gun in the house and called the police. And uh, he was found with a firearm on the property. And I think he did three months in once once with prison and was never the same again. He actually died in I think 1952 or 1953. So. And, so, and, and when was this? When 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 in was the he... middle, in the middle of World War Two? Really? Mm. Isn't that, well, well, for firearms, there's another one. Because guns, you got me going now. I mean, guns, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people had guns. And, and you had a lot of young men with access to guns who used them. Um, and so you had, we had all kinds of things. You had, I found one in 1940, um, an undergraduate at Oxford who opened fire in the quad uh, and, and, and killed, I forget how many people, certainly one one or two people in the quad we think of that as a sort of modern american you know opening fire in a in a college but there there that's happening in 1940 because guns are around you had lots of soldiers who um were coming back on leave with their weapons finding their wives you know with other people and then you know killing the other person and it's so interesting you see the courts being well, bending over backwards to be lenient. They did not want to send these men to prison. There was one, one man who, who came home from leave, found his wife in bed uh, with another man, uh, shot the other man. He was then charged with manslaughter, came to a jury trial, found guilty, and the judge bound him over. I mean, can you imagine that? Binding up someone over for, for shooting someone dead. That's how desperate. Um, the criminal justice system was not to send these people to prison, not to criminalise them, not to keep them out of the army. Um, so um, didn't that happen? Uh, Quentin Crisp, wasn't he bound over? Let, let's talk about um, the increase yeah. in sexuality. Um, and uh, you, you had spoken to me before about Quentin Crisp, and didn't he, um, mm -hmm. the authorities looked the other way there as well, didn't they? They did, and that's a really interesting one, because, you know, talking about the, you know, people going... To extremes and, and, and the changing social mood. Homosexuality, which was obviously a crime back then, the authorities basically had better things to be focusing on. The police, who were stretched anyway, had better things to be looking out for than, 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 than people committing um, 
what would then considered indecent act. So Quentin Crisp, who was very, very flamboyant back then, you know, had long, blonde, wavy hair. He dressed, you know, in, in, in really sort of outrageous manner for the time. He was very used before the water being beaten up, you know, he was endlessly being, being attacked and people sort of swearing at him in the street. He noticed that at this time, once the bombing began, first of all, um, people were talking to him in a pleasant way. He actually said, you know, people, um, people are, everyone is talking to everyone else. They're even talking to me. Uh, and, and then even beyond that, he, he talks about London becoming a huge paved double bed because people were trying things. And there was a lot of, but I found one account of a man who, you know, slept with another man uh, in, in, in a train, uh, in a, a, a platform during a raid. And he just says, uh, right, you know, I, I, I wanted to try it. You know, suddenly here we were, we could all die. I wanted to, I wanted to see what it was like. Uh, and he said it was enhanced by the fact that there were bombs exploding all around. Um, so, so not only was there more um, sexual behavior, and this goes for, for you know, straight people as well, um, there was a lot more sexual behavior uh, because people were just sort of, you know, much more living for the moment. Uh, I, and I don't know how much of it had to do with sexual behaviour, but my nan was engaged three times to American servicemen in World War Two, And what she would do, it was more like a business venture, though. So she would get engaged to them and they would give her a ring and then she'd dump them. So she actually ended up with a collection of engagement rings, which she could pawn. Blimey, I bet your nan was a tough woman. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what she would. The thing is, though, like shockingly, at this point, I think she's only about sixteen or seventeen at this point. So, yeah, let's not judge her, though. Like wow. you say, wartime about. No, no, I'm not. No, no, I don't. I, I have nothing but admiration for your nan. In my <laughs> head, this is a chaste business venture, and that's the way it's staying. Because otherwise, <laughs> I may, I may crumble. As we're on the same topic um, yeah. of the nan marriage, what uh, what's this concept of a wartime marriage? I'm I'm a little bit lost here. Okay, so. I mean, you know, people taking it a bit further than, than Nan. Um, this is the idea that basically because, you know, you had lots of men who were away in the forces, so leaving, you know, their married wives alone, and those men would effectively be replaced in, you know, the, 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 the towns and cities by other people coming in. So you had loads of, 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 of foreigners coming in. You had a, a, a big wave of, of Canadians, first of all, you know, before the Americans came in. But you had lots of people coming in from um, Nazi-occupied Europe. You had lots of people coming in from um, the, the colonies and dominions, and also people coming in from around Britain. So there's this one example that I found, which stands for a lot of other examples, I think. Look at this woman who said that her mother had but it was been in a fairly loveless marriage um, uh, and her husband had gone off to fight. And at, at that time, this was during the Blitz, and at that time a man had uh, come in working for one of the ministries from Scotland who was also married and he was, he'd come down to London. So he was on his own. This woman's mother was on her own. The two of them found each other and they got together and they became basically, to all intents and purposes, a married couple. So they you know, they spent all their time together. They were totally loyal to each other, but always on the understanding that when the war was over, they would separate. That was it. And they'd go back to their marriages, uh, their real marriages. And this was something that when I started to look into it actually happened quite a lot. These, this idea of the wartime marriage out of like so much that was happening at this time out of pragmatism, because 
you know, people were lonely um, because it was easier to, to get through this with somebody else. Because culturally, you know, you were meant to be with somebody else. Socially, you were meant to be with somebody else. And it sort of became, in my mind, I sort of view it as the, the kind of, you know, sexual uh, equivalent to powdered egg. It was something, you know, for the duration, but not intended to last any longer. And uh, I find it actually quite, quite touching, pragmatic, but also quite touching the way these people were, were loyal to each other. And I think, you know, if you, if you see the, the film Brief Encounter, there's certainly an, an element of that in, in, in the film, um, I think. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's one of these, I, I just find it very moving anyway. Now in the war, suddenly the factory workers are catapulted into the limelight. Mm. And we're seeing now, well, that now with the NHS and the supermarket workers, aren't we? I, oh, I think it's very, very similar. I think that, you know, this sudden, you know, leap in status, leap in importance, for people who, you know, weren't really a, given the time of day by officials a month ago, literally a month ago, uh, are now being seen as incredibly important key workers, people that we can't continue without. And there's absolutely a parallel there with the way at this time, so many people in Britain started being basically treated better. Um, you know, the, the, the authorities realized that the war could only be won by the factory workers doing their doing their thing, you know, by, by making the munitions, by keeping the country going. So wages went up uh, and, and, and their protections uh, increased. And all, like all sorts of people doing all sorts of different things that hadn't been valued suddenly were immensely valued. And, you know, you see, absolutely, you can see, you know, the same kind of thing happening now. The people who are working in shops, in supermarkets, particularly in the health service, not just the doctors, but the people doing the other roles um, in, in the health service, suddenly, you know, they're being, they're being applauded in the streets. And, and, and one thing I think is worth thinking about is that, you know, after, once the war was over, um, the people who had been treated better, you know, they, it was very hard for the government, even though they, you know, clearly wanted to at different times, wanted to sort of roll back um, the advantages, you know, the, the, the better treatment that these people had. They wanted to go back in some ways to, to, to the position before the war. It's very difficult. You know, once you've made life better for people, very, very hard for a government to make it worse again. So once we have, you know, basically increased, the, improved the status of these people, improved their pay, improved the way, you know, people across the board, actually, it's going to be very interesting to see how, when, this crisis is over, God willing, it won't be too long. Um, how, if and how the government tried to sort of roll that back, um, or whether we're faced with a completely new situation, a completely new sort of social economic pecking order. I don't know. I don't know. It's all up for grabs. You know, I, we could go on all night, and, and we really could, um, but we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, this, do you know what? I, this this cast has been so relevant and so interesting um i think essentially what we've been saying for far too long now is that um 
yes, some semblance, semblance of unified spirit gripped Britain during the Blitz, and that there are lots of touching examples of it, but people aren't saints, and people just aren't that very different now. We haven't created a generation of, of monsters. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I have to get you back on. Um, I'd love to have you on to do World War One flying with me. That would be epic. Oh, I'd love to. No, 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 no more World War One. Shut up. Nobody asked oh. you. <laughs> Do you mind? I'd like to come back on. But yeah. She's just <laughs> told me. She has just told me. Josh, I love you. I think you're great. But please, no more World War II. Bring on some World War II. We want World War II. Don't make me mute you. Um, Josh can come on and do World War II as well. He's writing actually his new book, which we haven't had time to talk about. He's currently uh, writing a book about El Alamein. Is that right? Well, I'm writing about about North Africa, about basically the the, the special re- birth of the special relation. A lot of different things. I, I say writing. I mean, I'm, you know, all, all, all my uh, sources have tried up because I can't get into an archive. But in theory, yes, that's what I'm doing. Oh, that Josh, one, <laughs> Josh, I love you, ma, 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 my whippersnapper in crime. You are awesome. Yeah, um, Alina, I'm gonna let you introduce who's on tomorrow but only if you promise not to scream again, because she's fangirling, she's out of control on this one. (laughs) I have been going absolutely mental over our next guest, uh, tomorrow's guest. I, I, I don't even know how to say this. Tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow, we have Mary Beard. Mary Beard, people. Mary we have a so, list of questions don't we as like long as the magna carta uh, sorry long as the doomsday book to uh of people. that is not including yeah. mine that is no. not including mine <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm everybody i really apologize but mary beard she is so awesome so but um right I, we better move on because i'm going to fan off about 20 minutes and we don't have time for that <laughs> we really so, don't but josh I really want to say thank you so much for coming oh, on. pleasure. Pleasure. Okay. Lovely. It was great fun. Love to have you on again. But that is it from us. So remember, people, stay safe. And if at all possible, stay in your house. This is Nighthawk signing off. <laughs>